0: pray with me. Father, we thank you as we have gathered here before you. Uh, Lord, we've come by the new and living way through uh, your son's broken body. Uh, Lord, you have welcomed us into your presence where angels and archangels fall down before you. Uh, Lord, we come tonight to be exposed to your word, Lord, to be shaped and formed and uh, corrected and encouraged and equipped Uh, Father, we we thank you that you promised that you would be enthroned on the praises of your people. And tonight, Lord, we ask that you would teach us and that you would be with us and that it would be you, Lord Jesus, who would bring your word to bear on our hearts. Uh, Lord Jesus, that you would be our shepherd and feed us. And we thank you for that, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, many people know uh, I teach history. I've taught history for almost, well, I don't know, 30 years, let's say, 28, 27 years. How many people in this room have I taught history at, at Mars Hill? Ah, okay. So I want to put on my history hat just for a little bit before I put on the pastor hat uh, and share what I want to share tonight. Uh, and the history hat that I want to put on is this. Um, in American history, uh, there's been three big movements of church growth, three times when a lot of people became Christians and a lot of people were added to the church. The first was the, the Great Awakening, which took place in the years leading up to the American Revolution. And we think that the, the, uh, just measuring by church attendance, church attendance went from about 10% of the population to about 17% of the population. All right, So it was a, a major movement where people became Christians and they were added to the church. The next big time was the Second Great Awakening, not very original name, but this this happened in the years leading up to the Civil War, so the the 1830s and 40s. The third happened in the 25 years after the Civil War, and actually this period of time after the Civil War, War saw the biggest growth in the church in the United States of America to date. So three big moments in American history uh, when the church grew and was revived and people were added to the faith. Well, I want to share some, uh, some data with you tonight about something that's happened over the last 25 years that's related to this. Over the last 25 years, we've seen the fastest shift in church attendance in our country's history. All right, It's the fastest that we've ever seen. And we think that somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million people who used to attend church about 25 years ago no longer attend church. So you can understand that I'm saying it's a, it's a very fast-growing movement, but it's away from the church. It's away from the faith. Uh, more adults today do not attend church than attend church. Um, more people have left, listen to this, more people have left the church More people have left attending church over the last 25 years than were added to the church in America in all of those previous movements combined. All right, it's the fastest, biggest change in attendance uh, to church in American history, and it's happened over the last 25 years. Now, I'm not a prophet. But I think this data confirms that something has happened in America to the church. Something has happened to the faith in America. And the church in America has moved, is moving, from a place of privilege and power and favor to being on the margins. And I don't think, by the way, that one election, or two elections, or three elections going the way we hope they might go will change this. I think it's something that we might be settling into for quite a long time. And I don't think we should pat ourselves on the back and say, well, it hasn't been true for us as a community of churches, because as was just shared a minute ago, God sees one church. And we're a part of this church of all people in Christ in the United States of America and the world. But I'm considering tonight the United States of America. So again, I think by all accounts, the Christians in the United States can expect to be in a place of exile and marginality for some time, maybe generations. I mean, it's been 25 years. Um, maybe it could be generations. And I don't want this to be discouraging. I think we just have to be sober and face facts. Uh, And I actually have some encouragements out of this tonight from the book of Hebrews. But I just want to point out that the early church, from the time of the New Testament to about 300, had no power, had no influence, had no position of privilege in society. And over those years, the gospel of Jesus Christ slowly leavened that society, as people saw the lives of Christians, as people heard the testimony of Christians, as people saw healings and lives changed, as people saw Christians who refused to give up the faith, even though they were facing great persecution. So the church's influence grew and spread, maybe, maybe, precisely because she didn't have power and didn't have a place of influence in society that came from the top down. And I would suggest that exile, that is the sense of not being at the center of power, or at least not seemingly to be at the center of power, may be the normal state for the people of God. Or at least I would put it this way. In the history of the people of God, we see the church maturing the most in times of exile. We see the church repenting most in times of exile. We see the church depending on God the most in the times of exile. So tonight what I want to do is just give six brief exhortations from the book of Hebrews, and I want to mention or at least discuss here in the beginning why Hebrews. We could do this from a lot of different books of Scripture, but Hebrews has been on my heart lately. It's addressed to a group of believers. We're not given a lot of details, but it's addressed to a group of believers who have seen some hard times lately. There's been some persecution. They've Maybe been really enthusiastic about the faith, but there's been a number of things that have gone on apparently that have discouraged them, uh, that have made some of them turn away uh, and turn back to Judaism. Some, it seems, have become sort of bored and listless with the faith, and many, as I said, have fallen away from the faith. And again, I think that speaks somewhat to what's gone on in the church in America in these years. So the book of Hebrews is this bracing call to hold fast to the faith once and for all delivered to the people of God, and I think it's appropriate for our time and context. So let me give you six exhortations, encouragements, challenges from the book of Hebrews that I think will hold us well during this period of time. And again, not a time of despair, but a time of confidence that God's gospel can't be stopped. And the kingdom of, of God can't be shaken, and his church ultimately uh, will endure. I'm going to give a lot of scripture, so it might be hard to take notes. Hebrews 3, chapter 1 says this, Therefore, oh, my first point is this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 3, chapter 1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The first exhortation, and I would say the framing exhortation of the book of Hebrews, is to look to Jesus. To set our eyes on Jesus. And notice what he says about what we're setting eyes on. Jesus endured the cross. He endured shame. He endured weakness. He endured what appeared like failure on the outside. He embraced all the things that are common to our lot, and he embraced much of what we might be experiencing in our country and in the world in the years to come. As the writer, uh, or as Psalm 8 says, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, yet he was the son of God. He was humbled and humiliated, and he did this gladly. But then, as he says, he ascended on high, and he is seated at the right hand of power. And I want to stress this. Where the universe is run is at the right hand of the power of God. All the most important decisions that are made are made there. And that is where Jesus Christ is seated, and we're able to set our eyes on him. And we follow him. That's what disciples are. We follow Jesus. But I want to point this out about what the writer of Hebrews is saying about following Jesus. And pause, can I just say Paul because I think it was Paul and I don't like saying the writer of Hebrews. I'm going to say Paul from here on out. I could be wrong, but stick with me. We fix our eyes on him because he took on our frame and he went through what we went through and he knows our weakness and he is a high priest that can sympathize with us and we are following him through a path that he tread before us. He is like a great ship and he is drawing us in his wake through suffering through shame into the kingdom of his Father amen. It gives us as it says endurance to run the race. Jesus who for the joy set before him, the joy of returning to his father's presence and bringing many brothers and sisters with him into his father's presence endured the shame endured the seeming failure and the jeers of those who accused him of being a failure because of the joy that was set before him. And the joy that is set before us is him, our Lord, our King, our High Priest, who has gone before us into the heavenly tabernacle. Amen? We have a High Priest who can sympathize with our weakness, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of power. That's number one. The second one is this hold fast, hold fast to the faith. I've been reading through Hebrews repeatedly here lately, and I've noticed this refrain, and it is this refrain of hold fast. Let me just read uh, the various examples. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our our confidence and boasting in our hope. 314, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on our original confidence firm to the end. 414, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 618, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And finally, 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In the years to come, we may see a lot of people turn from the faith. Uh, We might see the church shrink further, I don't know, in our country, but Paul wants us to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Because the one Jesus who has gone into the heavens on our behalf and seated at the right hand of of the Father, he is faithful and he will fulfill his promise. Amen? Amen. Number three, another repeated phrase. If you read uh, Hebrews again and again, you will begin to notice it. Another repeated phrase is to enter in. Let us enter that rest. Remember in chapter three, he says, Some failed to enter that rest. And as God swore again and again, they shall not enter my rest. He uses this phrase of entering the rest again and again and again. Chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again and again, the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage us to enter in to the Sabbath rest of the people of God. 4.11, we know this one. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And finally, in 10.19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, uh, we should enter into that rest. So this entering in, what is it? Well, it's entering into the kingdom of God. It's entering into worship. Have you noticed that in the Gospels, Jesus says talks a lot about entering the kingdom? That unless you become like a child, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? Because I think entrance into the kingdom of heaven and entrance into the heavenly tabernacle which Jesus opened and entrance into the rest of God is all the same thing. He's talking about worship. But when we think of worship, we think of songs, or we think of our gathering, we think of the building or whatever, but that's not what I mean. And I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews means. That's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. I mean passing into, through through the means of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, into the heavenly tabernacle that is the true tabernacle, that the tabernacle in the Old Testament was modeled after, that the temple was modeled after. I mean entering into the kingdom of God by assembling around our king, by assembling to the one who made us and redeemed us. It means coming before him to be inspected by him, to be examined by him. And good news, he's a tender and gentle high priest. It means entering into this worship that he has made possible and that entering into the place where Adam and Eve were driven from and where the priests could only approach tentatively, now, because of the new covenant, we can enter into that heavenly tabernacle. And every time the people of God gather, we enter into that place. It's not what you see here. It is not the visible. It is the invisible tabernacle that God has made, that Jesus has ministered over, and that he welcomes his people into every time we gather to his name. Amen? So when we gather May the Spirit of God open our hearts and our minds and our imaginations to not see this and to not hear how the song goes, but to enter into that true and heavenly tabernacle. I think the most consequential gathering on the planet Earth is the gathering of the people of God around Jesus Christ into that heavenly tabernacle. It is more significant than Davos or whatever might happen in Washington, D.C., and we need faith to believe that and see that and believe that that the people of God gathering in the United States of America does more than we can ever imagine. Let's keep entering in. Amen? The fourth thing out of Hebrews that I want to encourage accept pruning. Accept pruning. Surely part of why the church in America is diminished is because of sin and failure on her part. We see the church is rebuked in the New Testament, and surely the church in America has responsibility for some of what's gone on. But God loves his church, and because he loves his church, he's correcting her. He loves his church, and because he loves his church, she's getting smaller. Think about the history of the people of God. God brings judgment because he loves his people. He brings pruning because he wants them to bring forth new fruit. He wants to bring them into judgment so that he can bring them out the other side to new life. Notice, and this is very important, sometimes we use this language, but we do not and cannot build the kingdom of God. We cannot build the kingdom of God. Notice how the scriptures talk about the kingdom. We can enter it, we can receive it, We can proclaim it, we can pray for it, but we do not build it, he does. We don't build the church and we can talk about, we sometimes talk as though we build the church, but he does. We do not examine ourselves, but he does. Think of the opening of the book of Revelation when John turns and sees the voice that is speaking to him and it is Jesus with eyes of fire and a sword coming from his mouth He is the one that walks in the midst of the lampstands and examines his churches and speaks words of correction and rebuke. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, after it says, let us labor to enter that rest, what does that rest look like? He says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we gather, when we enter in by the new and living way that Jesus has made, we gather and he wields his sword upon us. It's the sword of his spirit. It's the sword of his word. And remember, he is a gentle and a sympathetic high priest, and in love he wields his sword upon us, and we willingly let him. Because it is only that sword that can circumcise the human heart. It is only the sword of the word of God and the spirit of God that can pierce the human heart. And we willingly and gladly offer ourselves to him for his examination. So he can pierce our heart. So he can discern our motives with his sword. It is the sword that cuts away what is unprofitable so that new life may grow. It is a sword that Jesus uses to cut us up so that he can offer us up as a sacrifice to the Father. Hebrews 12:7 says this, "It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline?" He should have come to the United States of America. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jesus brings us into the Father's presence, and it is he who corrects us in love. It is he who loves us enough to mature us and to bring that discipline into, his li- into our lives so that we can be what he wants us to be in the earth. Let's embrace that pruning. Amen? Number five. Embrace exile. This is uh, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I think if you look at history and you look at the scriptures, times of exile have been a t- times of renewal for the people of God. They have been times of strengthening. Maybe this has been coming for a long time and we should hope for it. Maybe we should hope for this time of exile. Again, I think perhaps we should think that on this side of the consummation, it's the regular exile. Sojourning is the regular state of the church. Exile promotes the advance of the gospel. Consider that the church in Jerusalem was persecuted. And what happened when they were persecuted? I imagine they thought, we're going to be in Jerusalem, and this is going to be the capital of Christianity, and this is great, and man, isn't life great? And they were scattered by persecution. And to their surprise, perhaps, everywhere they went, the seeds of the gospel were sown. And the gospel began to produce fruit everywhere it went. I don't think they got together to do a church planning conference and said, you know what, we ought to get persecuted so that we can spread the gospel. But that's precisely what happened. It promotes the exile of the gospel because it causes the people of God to adapt to change and to cry out to God and to find out what he wants. And what he wants is for the seed of the gospel to go forth. Exile bursts the bubble of our illusions of control. I think as Americans, we're prone to think that we are in charge of outcomes, that we can just do the X, Y, or Z, we can tweak these factors and we can get all the outcomes we want. But outcomes are not in our hands. Faithfulness is in our hands obedience is in our hands. Trust in God and faithfulness to his purposes, that is in our hands. Outcomes are in his hands. And exile makes us go, God thank you that outcomes are not in my hand, but they're in your hands. Exile reminds us of our ultimate identity. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It helps us remind ourselves of our identity, our most fundamental identity. Thank God for our country, and pray for our country, and hope for our country, and do good for our country. But we have no idea the ultimate future of our country. But we have a citizenship that is in heaven. And we're called to lay down our lives for the city and the culture and the country to which we've been given. Exile requires discipleship. Daniel and his companions thrived in exile without power because they wanted to know God's will. They wanted to know his ways and they wanted to be faithful to him. God often shakes the earthly city to pieces so that we can be reminded of the lasting worth of our unshakable heavenly kingdom. Lastly, number six, consider one another. Consider one another. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort is the word that's related to the word for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete. It means to come alongside one another and speak to one another to strengthen and encourage and challenge. Hebrews 10 24 says this, and let us consider one another, how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul opens this letter by saying, consider Jesus, the apostle, the high apostle of our faith. And here at the end, he says, now consider one another. Think about one another. Consider, take time to think about one another. When he says consider Jesus, he's not saying it in an offhanded way. He's saying that should be the preoccupying vision of our hearts and minds. And likewise, I think he's saying a preoccupation of our hearts and minds should be one another. How we can rouse one another. How we can encourage and challenge one another toward love and good deeds. He says don't give up gathering together. Because apparently many had begun to give up gathering together or sort of Drag their feet about gathering together. He says, do so all the more as you see the day approaching. Lastly, in 13.1, he says, let brotherly love continue. Love that we have learned from God in Christ, love for the people of God, has always been the church's most powerful evangelism, most powerful apologetic, most powerful preaching. Amen? I read this last scripture towards the end of Hebrews. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's good news that we don't build the kingdom because what we build is shaken. What we build, no matter what we make it of, is shaken, but what God builds lasts forever. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. He is shaking his church. He's removing what is merely human. It might seem like a terrible loss at times, but I believe he is shaking away. It's like when you shake a tablecloth and you get rid of the crumbs. He's shaking away what is not profitable, what is worthless. But his kingdom cannot be shaken. The church, and this is important to note, not necessarily my church, but the church will remain. Amen? It will last forever. We offer gratitude that we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We offer acceptable worship to him because our God is a consuming fire, and we are glad for him to consume in us whatever he needs to. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Father, that you are building something in the earth that is lasting, that is beautiful, that is full of justice, that is full of righteousness, that is full of harmony. And you have brought us into that kingdom because it is the kingdom of your son. Lord, that you have brought us into your presence by his spilt blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, we want to fix our eyes on your son, Jesus. We want to regularly with your people enter into your heavenly kingdom, enter into the Sabbath rest of the people of God, enter into this place where angels gather around your throne. Lord, we want to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Father, we thank you that you have invited us into this thing and regardless of what happens, Father, you are doing something in us and through us That will last forever. We bless you for that. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.